Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Another week, another mass shooting. This time in Tulsa, where a gunman shot and killed four people at a hospital before turning the gun on himself. We are supposed to be the ones that are caring for others during tragedies like this. To think that our caregivers were the victims uh, is just incomprehensible to me. It's the 233rd mass shooting so far this year, according to data from the Gun Violence Archive. The archive characterizes a mass shooting as four or more people shot or killed, not including the shooter. Last night, President Biden renewed his call for more gun control, calling for roughly a half dozen new measures. That's a lot to ask from a Senate that hasn't successfully passed any gun reform in nearly 30 years. So what happens now? Joining us this week is Eva McKend. She's a national politics reporter with CNN. Eva, welcome back. Good to be with you. Also with us, Wendy Benjaminson, the deputy managing editor of Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Wendy, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. And David Lightman, the congressional correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start with President Biden. Guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer more than car accidents, more than cancer. Over the last two decades, more school-age children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. Think about that. More kids than on-duty cops killed by guns. More kids than soldiers killed by guns. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? In this speech, Biden called for a lot to happen. Background checks, red flag laws, an assault weapons ban, a high capacity magazine ban, and a raise on the age limit to purchase some kinds of guns. David, can Biden himself make any of this happen? Probably not. Uh, He operates differently than other presidents. Back in the day of Ronald Reagan or Lyndon Johnson, they would call wavering lawmakers into the Oval Office, look them in the eye, say, I need you on this one. And it's a pretty intimidating environment. That's not Biden's style. Because Biden is a man of Congress, he, he would rather let Congress negotiate, let the process play out. But you can see how frustrated he is. I think the upshot of last night is this. There are serious talks underway to enact some kind of red flag law. You already have it in 19 states. Uh, raising the age limit on purchasing assault weapons from 18 to 21 also has some support. We'll see. I mean, nine senators from each party are negotiating. And um, I think next week we may see some breakthrough. Eva, I want to get to Congress in a a moment, but could Biden issue an executive order on any of these issues? Well, it would certainly be something that would face legal challenges. It is just really hard 
for him to do anything concrete besides use his bully pulpit to put pressure on Congress. I was surprised that he actually outlined specific policies because it seemed like just a few days ago he wasn't interested in weighing in on this too heavily because the administration knows the limits of their power in this space. Mm. But he did go somewhat far in at least naming specifically what he wants to see Congress do. Now, there is a small bipartisan group of senators discussing gun legislation. Uh, They've reportedly created an outline. Wendy, how much do we know about what's in it? Well, um, not too much, but I do think we know that it does contain some of the things that, uh, that Biden laid out last night. It includes possibly stronger background checks, possibly a red flag law, maybe raising the age. These are things that um, John Cornyn, a Texas senator, and Chris Murphy, who is from the state where Sandy Hook happened, and of course Cornyn from Texas with Uvalde, uh, you know, they, I think they feel like it's really time to do something, and there may be measures that they can pass. One of the big blocks will be um, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. He has said that any legislation has to be specifically tied to Uvalde. Now, the shooter in Uvalde did not have a history of mental illness, um, and did, so a red flag law wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been effective. And the same with the background check; nothing would have appeared. He didn't have a criminal record, so um, those are things that may be McConnell's too clever by halfway of uh, you know of stymieing the legislation. So we'll we'll just have to see. Well, and David, more broadly, how likely is it that that any Republicans, much less the ten needed, We'll do something here. Well, the feeling in the Senate, there are roughly 30 to 35 Republicans who will not vote for any gun control, anything that smacks of gun control. But that still leaves you a core of 15 to 20. So take the red flag laws. And Wendy's absolutely right. There's probably nothing a red flag law could have done. But that's something that Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, signed into law in 2018 when he was governor of Florida. And arguably, it's worked very well. Thousands of uh, orders have been issued. So that's something they could probably buy. The problem is going to be two things. Number one, when you start getting into the weeds of this, um, do you give the federal court jurisdiction over this exclusively? Do you give both federal and state courts jurisdiction? Right now, it's a state court matter. Um, You'll see next week in the House, there's legislation to do both, and they're probably going to pass both. So I think... They're moving in that direction, and McConnell knows how to read the room, and if he thinks the votes are there, he'll let it happen. But right now, it's sort of 51-49 that it will. We got this message from Mark who writes, please stop calling it gun control. It's regulations on guns. In no other place in our government do we call regulations control. Car control, food control, control is the opposite of freedom, and that scares people who don't trust the government. Eva, give us a sense of where the, the public is on this issue right now. Well, poll after poll has showed that the majority of Americans believe that the the current laws are unacceptable, that a basic background check should be implemented. But, you know, year after year, despite the public polling, 
are mostly Republicans in Congress just reject those measures. And I have to say, even some Democrats, uh, Speaker Pelosi said that the House will move on an assault weapons ban. That was kind of a vague call. She didn't say what specific legislation. But there are centrist Democrats who oppose such a ban, only only, uh, a few Republicans who are open to it. So for a long time, our lawmakers have not met the moment of what the public um, wants to see happen in this country. And Wendy, are you observing any shift in the political rhetoric among lawmakers on this issue right now? I do, but I really have to squint when I'm I'm seeing Mm. it. I think the horror of children being slaughtered with an assault weapon uh, might have moved the needle just a little bit. The other really crass advantage is that it happened in an election year. Uh, And as Eva correctly points out, public public opinion is shifting in this. Sandy Hook happened the year right after an election. So there was two years for the public to sort of get over it before it would come up again, and then it didn't come up in the following election. This year, we have primaries underway. We have um, an election looming in November. And I think um, there are some Republicans who, who can see that the public would appreciate some, to our listeners' um, point, some regulation over guns the way there is over an automobile. Christopher emails, modern president's ability to pressure Congress has been limited since Congress eliminated earmarks. Presidents have little left except the bully pulpit. And Ray tweets, Biden's speech puts him in fantasy land. Red flag laws should remain with the states. Federal courts are not a platform to handle issues designed for state and local courts. I'd love to hear you respond to those messages, David. Uh, first of all, yeah, there was an earmark ban, but this year they're back. They don't call them earmarks anymore. They're like can't remember. There's some new way of saying it. But yeah, they're back. Each lawmaker, I think, got 10 projects or something. Um, but he's right. That was one of the great pressure points that the president can use. I think the issue is more to go back to Biden is a man of the Senate. And he knows its deliberative ways and he respects that. And to suddenly go from being a man of the Senate to an executive is difficult. I mean, Look, before uh, President Obama, nobody had been elected directly from the Senate uh, since John F. Kennedy in 1960. Governors often won the presidency. They're executives. So I think that may be part of the issue here. The other problem is a different kind of Senate than you had even 10, 15 years ago. It's polarized. And guns is one of those issues, and you can debate all the fine points until you turn blue, but you go out to certain areas and talk to reasonable people about guns. No, they don't want to hear gun regulation. But but I also want to highlight the other comment we got, Eva, because this is part of the tension emerging from this conversation, is people saying, well, this should be a state issue. But when you look at states that are buttressed by states that have looser gun regulations, they say these guns are coming into states, even though we our state, even though we have tighter ones. Yes, this is a national problem, and that is the challenge with dealing with this on a state-by-state level. But that is the only place where people who are seeking regulation have found any kind of hope on the state level. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail.
We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Alice tweets, when will the press remind the public how much campaign money each politician receives from the NRA and other gun manufacturer representatives? We should mention here that in 2021, the NRA spent $4.9 million on lobbying efforts. I mean, David, talk about the money here. I'm laughing because uh, go to McClatchyDC.com. We have a story that went up this morning at 8 o'clock, mostly about California and money. It's interesting. There's not not a, a lot of money from either gun rights or gun regulation uh, advocates. Uh, $1,000 here, $5,000 there. Um, I think it was Jonah Goldberg had an excellent column the other day, and he said the, the power of uh, the gun rights groups is not so much in the money they give or the money they spend on lobbying. It's, in fact, it's not up there with health care, with um, defense, things like that. It's the fact that uh, they know how to influence voters. People know how to vote with their feet in this case. But we found that um, the contributions are predictable. Uh, Conservative Republicans got money. Democrats who have advocated gun control or regulation uh, also got money. So it's – at this point – and we talked to some experts about this, and they said this is probably uh, something where people are immovable. Well, I just want to mention we we spent an hour talking about the NRA and – uh, their efforts in this issue. And you can find that conversation at the 1A.org. We'll also tweet out a link at 1A. Now, Congress may be gridlocked on gun legislation, but some survivors are looking for their own solutions. A Uvalde school staffer has started legal proceedings against the gunmaker Daniel Defense, and the filing seeks to determine if the manufacturer can be sued for how it promotes firearms. Wendy, this petition is based in part on the lawsuit filed by Sandy Hook parents after uh, against gunmaker Remington. Why go after the manufacturer's advertising methods? Well, I think it's because they they market, and I think this company in particular has a reputation for marketing these weapons of war to teenage boys, you know, to or to, let me rephrase that, to people who are attracted to guns for the same reason a teenage boy might, you know, for the adventure, for feeling like a soldier, for, you know, all those sort of um, reasons. And so if they if their marketing influenced this young man to commit this horrible crime in Uvalde, then um, I think this teacher uh, believes there may be deep pockets there where um, she might be able to get some relief, certainly not from the shooter or his family. Now, there's the 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act uh, that basically says gun manufacturers can't be held liable for, quote, the misuse of firearms by third parties, including criminals. But even President Biden mentioned getting rid of liability protections for manufacturers during his speech last night. Any chance that could happen? I'm not sure, but I think that the reason why it keeps being discussed is because this is an area where folks believe that they can chip away and make some progress. Mm-hmm. I think we should also mention this this speech pathologist who is uh, bringing this, uh, asking this company, this Georgia-based company, to be deposed. She was falsely accused of propping the door. And so you could imagine, you know, a real... Uh, just just an utter sadness there and, and something on some level that she wants to see done. So I think this is an area where, you know, let's go after the gun companies, um, not uh, gun owners, I think maybe is an area where some of these uh, these folks feel like they might be able to get some kind of recourse. 
Now, the president's address came one day after yet another mass shooting, this time in Tulsa. David, what, what do we know about this specific shooting? Uh, four people dead. Uh, apparently, the shooter uh, had gone into uh, for, for back surgery, and he continued to have back pain, shot the physician, shot others involved in it, and I guess two patients uh, who were – two people who were there. Um, it's interesting to me, though, that it, this would have been what we used to call front-page news, and yet it's – I don't mean to minimize the impact of it, but again, it's kind of just all falls into the mix – um, one comment I might make about the um, lawsuit, too, mm-hmm. I may have this wrong, but I believe the Sandy Hook um, victim's parents sued Remington, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and they had a settlement because they went after them for advertising. That's right. That was the yeah. exception to that. So mm-hmm. I think that's that looks like what this uh, lawsuit or this request for a deposition is also after. It, yeah, they're definitely targeting the advertising yeah. to say whether it was targeted at certain audiences. Right. But but you bring up an interesting point about the Tulsa shooting, David. In 2021, the U.S. saw its highest number of active shooter incidents in 20 years. So that's according to data from the FBI. Wendy, do we know what's behind this recent surge in shooting? The short answer is no, but I have heard experts discuss that we are coming out of a a pretty rough period in American politics. Um, You know, we had the highly contested election followed by the insurrection at the Capitol, followed by the, well, not followed by, but in the midst of a deadly pandemic that no one currently alive has seen. The last one was 100 years ago. Um, We've had the fight over vaccines. We've had... um, you know, all of this. And then now we have inflation and high gas prices. And I think people are, people are fed up. People are tired of being, you know, getting the sense of being scared just to leave their homes. I think we are in the midst of what could be a mental health crisis in this country, just because everything's sort of, you know, gone to hell in a handbasket <laughs> for hmm. the moment. Eva, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I guess it it is the longstanding policy. Uh, Tulsa marked the 233rd mass shooting of this year. And so I think that uh, certainly Republicans in Congress want to attribute this to mental health. But we are the only developed country that seems to have this perennial problem, uh, this uh, pervasive gun culture. And I'm not I'm not really sure what to make of it, except that, you know, we are where we are because of the realities of of the laws in this country. David, your thoughts. Um, I want to go back for a minute to what Wendy said and broaden it out a little bit, because I'm old enough to have been in college in the 60s when everything went nuts. Uh, and we thought, oh, my gosh, the, the country's going to fall apart. But the difference was this. People in the 60s believed in the system. I mean, that's what the Vietnam protests, the civil rights protests, somehow that you could change the system. You could get the Supreme Court to act. You could get Congress to limit the uh, number of troops. I don't see that faith in the system being quite as widespread. And this is something that isn't new. I mean, frankly, this goes back to, you know, the 80s, 90s, whatever, and I'll leave it to the sociologists to figure that out. But... I think one of the things that uh, spurred the election of Donald Trump in 2016, you know, he was going to break the glass. He was going to shake things up. He wasn't tied to this system. And I'm not saying somehow there's a straight line to gun violence, but it's all part of this malaise, if you will. 
But I think it's also important that we we note that people with mental illness account for just about 4% of violent crimes and 2% of crimes involving a gun that, that's from the National Alliance on Mental Health, so on mental illness, rather. So I think a lot of people would agree, yes, there is a mental health crisis in the country, but conflating that with gun violence, uh, I think a lot of experts would say... Uh, not not so fast. Atlas tweets, maybe states with strict gun laws who are next to states with little to no gun laws should follow the example of Texas's abortion law, pass a law allowing for citizens to police and punish citizens who cross state lines to purchase weapons. And Scott tweets, could a city like Chicago bring a suit against Indiana in regards to lax gun laws impacting their citizens? David, what do you think? <laughs> no legal expert. I mean, interesting thought. I'd like to hear more about that. That's Thanks for giving us an idea for a story. Yeah, yeah. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at 1A or email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Now, we mentioned the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, at an elementary school where 19 kids and two teachers were killed last Tuesday. And state investigators now say the Uvalde School District police chief isn't speaking to them. Eva, what's what's happening? Yeah, so Pete Arredondo, he's the chief of the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District. He's disputing this. He uh, told CNN this week that he has been in regular contact with DPS. But there are new questions about who knew students were alive inside that room while officers were just outside. And um, did he, uh, in his capacity, make an error by treating the active shooter situation as one where a subject uh, had barricaded themselves away from police and, and there weren't still victims in the room? So there are a lot of questions for Arredondo, but I would, I would caution against sort of um, just this, this heightened focus on him alone. There are many uh, law enforcement agencies over this jurisdiction. So I believe that uh, we should have questions for them all. Mm. And Wendy, briefly, what more do we know about the timeline surrounding that shooting, especially since the official version of events has has changed several times? Well, it's a little hard to tell because they keep changing the timeline. I think just the other day, they had accused a teacher of propping open the door through which the shooter entered um, the the room. And now it turns out... uh, she hired an attorney who claims that who says that that's absolutely wrong, and they've backed off from this accusation that she did close the door as the rules suggest, and the door was supposed to automatically lock, but there was some malfunction with the lock, so the door was unlocked, and the the shooter was able to enter the school. But there have been lots, and there was a, a report in the very first hours that a school police officer was outside and exchanged gunfire with the shooter. The, you know, that has been taken back. So I think there's still a lot of holes in the timeline. The one thing we do know is that state officials say that the response by Eva's right, federal, state, and local law enforcement on the scene was not optimal. Parents were mistreated and told they couldn't, you know, go into the school. One woman, the Wall Street Journal reported, you know, broke from police and ran into the school and got her own kids out. I think any of us parents would have wanted to do the same thing, be as brave as she was. Um, And the, uh, you know, but it's going to be a while. I'm sure there will be long reports that explain exactly what happened here. 
Eva, jump in here. Yeah, there's just one thing I wanted to add about this. The way that the police narrative has shifted and evolved day by day, I think, is a gut check for us all. We cannot <laughs> rely on the police account as the definitive narrative. And I think that this situation has really underscored that reality for us. There is this reflex to valorize law enforcement. I think even a pressure uh, on the community, on journalists to do that after a crisis. And this horrible episode has underscored just how uh, critical and um, how uh, suspicious that we have to be of these initial accounts from law enforcement. Let's turn to Buffalo, where the alleged gunman behind that mass shooting that left 10 dead was charged on Wednesday. He faces 25 counts, including charges of murder, weapons possession, and attempted murder as a hate crime. David, what more do we know about that indictment? Domestic terrorism. Uh, They have added that to the list. Uh, Not that that's going to add to his potential years in prison if he's convicted, But I think what the prosecutors are trying to do here is send a message. Uh, This had been a real struggle whether to um, even create that kind of charge. Now they have. So it would be interesting to see uh, the arguments. I think this is going to be, I don't want to say a test case, but it could be uh, a template, if you will, for other uh, shootings like this. I mean, this was clearly a racially motivated incident. Whether it was terrorism or not, we'll see. Well, let's turn now to Pennsylvania, where some of the ballots in that state's recent primary elections will go uncounted for a while longer. The ballots are missing a required date on the outside of the envelope, but a local judge said they should be counted anyway since they were received on time. That decision was appealed, and this week Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito paused the counting. Wendy, how did this get to the Supreme Court? This is really kind of amusing because I'm sure it isn't for for Mehmet Oz or David McCormick, but it's amusing for those of us who observe politics. Um, Because what we're having right now is an intra-party GOP stop the steal fight, right? There was a very, very close race between uh, uh, David McCormick and Mehmet Oz, the celebrity TV physician. And for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania. It is too close to call. Um, And so Pennsylvania, of course, was one of those states that was at the center of the 2020 fight, um, partly over mail-in ballots, partly over the dates. And they changed some of the laws um, to, for example, require the date on the outside of the ballot, um, on the mail-in, on the envelope of the ballot, I should say. And now that has gone again, Pennsylvania voting has gone all the way to the Supreme Court, um, which has now you know, paused the vote, as you said. So I think you know, there will be this sort of debate going back and forth. Ultimately, they will have to decide whether they can count the votes. If they decide that those votes cannot be counted, I think we will have an extended um, challenge to, to the Senate nomination race. Now, Eva, that that race between Mehmet Oz and David McCormick was so close it triggered an automatic recount. So how big of a deal are these ballots for that race? Oh, every single vote (laughs) will be scrutinized. I know that uh, McCormick filed a lawsuit asking the Pennsylvania State Court to (laughs) order that some uh, 860 mail-in ballots uh, with missing dates be counted. This is what we see. It just becomes an all-out brawl towards the end when you're talking about a difference between hundreds of votes. Mm -hmm. And so I I would imagine this is going to to slog a little bit longer. But uh, when elections are this close, you know, we should not be surprised to see 
uh, basically both candidates go to the mat. After the break, we'll stay with the Supreme Court for just a little bit. And before we go to the break, the Scripps Spelling Bee has a new champion. 14-year-old Harini Logan of San Antonio, Texas, won the Bee's first ever sudden death spell-off last night, spelling 21 words correctly in 90 seconds. Hantish. H-O-T-T-I-S-H. Malbrook. M-A-L-B-R-O-U-C-K. Ornithorhynchus. O-R-N-I-T-H-O-R-H-Y-N-C-H-U-S. Nyandabai. N-A-N-D-U-B-A-Y. Morhen. M-O-O-R-H-E-N. The new Queen Bee received a trophy and a check for 50 grand. We'll be back with more after the break. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, this week, the Supreme Court blocked a Texas law targeting social media platforms. It banned online platforms from limiting user posts based on their political views. Eva, why did the court block the law? Well, uh, I guess the companies argue that the law violates their First Amendment rights uh, to control what content they disseminate on their websites and platforms. I think that um, uh, what was interesting to me that was that this was not on along um, the lines of how the court is made up. So uh, both, both conservative and liberal justices wanted to be um, uh, wanted a hold on this. I think that there is this long-held argument um, from conservatives that these platforms uh, discriminate against conservatives. And so that is why we saw Texas try to go after these companies. But it's not clear that uh, that they can do so legally. And so that is why we saw the court uh, put a hold on this. And, and Wendy, where does the case go from here? You know, I, I'm not, I think now they have put a bound law. I think there are some other states that have similar challenges that will be examined and it goes back to an appeals court to be adjudicated. It's sort of interesting timing though, because this is exactly the sort of um, uh, issue that Elon Musk is talking about in his pursuit of buying Twitter. If he actually does buy Twitter, you remember he wants to reopen it to anyone to just make it, um, you know, with no holds on it. Uh, So he would also probably oppose the Texas law. And of course, he lives in Texas now. So um, um, so this would be uh, he, you know, of course, he wants to open it up to to everyone. Well, let's move to another story. On Tuesday, a lawyer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, Michael Sussman, was acquitted of lying to the FBI. David, who is Michael Sussman and what was he accused of doing? Democratic lawyer, uh, prominent Democratic lawyer, uh, who was uh, charged by invest, uh, of lying to investigators about a potential relationship between, uh, I guess, the Trump Tower people and the Russians. Um, the special counsel had pursued this for years, and this was a big, big deal for Trump conservatives. You know, it was their proof that, in fact, there was chicanery in the Clinton campaign, he was acquitted and um, took so, away a lot. Yeah. So what does that mean for that investigation? Uh, I think that's it. I, I'm no legal scholar, but I think uh, 
that's that's all. Well, let's go to more court news. The battle over abortion access continues in the courts as we wait for the official decision over Roe v. Wade. And this time, the fight's in Florida. Abortion rights groups have sued to stop a new 15-week ban from going into effect in the Sunshine State. Eva, what's their argument and could it pass muster with the courts? Well, certainly they are going to try. Uh, we have seen states for years um, try to chip away at, at Roe um, and this legal battle sort of shift to state courts. But more for more than three decades in Florida, these courts have interpreted um, a privacy position uh, in the state constitution provision in the state constitution to include the right of abortion. But, you know, given the the makeup of the Supreme Court, I think that many of these states are thinking, let's strike while the iron is hot and believe that they that these laws can survive these challenges. Anything to add, Wendy? Yes, I think that um, it's very interesting that the Florida state constitution protects the right to end a pregnancy. And so do the state constitutions in Alaska, Minnesota, and Montana. So these states, some of which might want to pass laws after Roe is overturned, uh, you know, codifying a ban on abortion or limiting bans like Florida's 15-week ban, they may face similar challenges where they have to amend their constitution in order to do that. And that would take a popular vote, I believe, and that is a tricky one. Well, let's move now to the economy, which in terms of health has been under the weather lately. Inflation continues to rise, although it's showing signs of slowing. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNN this week that she was wrong about how much inflation would become an issue this year. I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted Uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't at the time didn't fully understand. But we recognize that now Uh, the Federal Reserve is taking the steps that it needs to take. It's up to them to decide what to do. And for our part, President Biden is focused on supplementing what the Fed does with actions we can take to lower the cost that Americans face. On Monday, President Biden wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on his plan to fight inflation. David, what do Yellen and Biden's statements signal for you in terms of the way the Biden administration is approaching inflation? Well, they're trying to say, look, we understand, we feel your pain, but there's very little they can do. Uh, It's in the hands of the Fed and it's in the hands of consumers. Now, I know much has been written about the Fed and how it can raise interest rates and has twice already this year and probably will again this month and next. Uh, higher interest rates obviously dampen consumer demand, et cetera. But I think there's another thing to watch, and that is consumer confidence. There are two good surveys, one by the University of Michigan, one by the conference board out of New York. And look at that because that tells you what consumers are thinking both today and in the future. If consumers aren't buying, then the economy falters badly. The other thing I would note is this. You get into what they call the wage price spiral, and I know economists are debating this now. Expectations. In other words, you want to buy the house now because you're worried in six months the price will go up. Once you get into that, as we did in the 70s, that's hard to break. Eva, your thoughts? 
Well, I think that it's significant that the uh, Treasury Secretary said that she was wrong. Um, we don't often see people in political spaces actually make that kind of concession. So I think that there is an indication that maybe initially the response to inflation was too callous and aloof. And now that they recognize that they have to, even if they can't in the immediate sense do a lot to change it, there has to be this uh, this posture of we feel your pain. We understand uh, what the reality is to not be able to afford basic uh, goods uh, services. And we are doing uh, what what we can in a limited fashion to address this. Wendy, I want to hear from you on this as well. What do you think these statements signal in terms of the way the administration is approaching this issue? Briefly, I think it it signals that there's an election on the horizon and they're getting hammered on this, shellacked, hammered, whatever word you want to use to show the Democrats um, are understanding that uh, what they have accomplished is not seen by many voters as enough. They are in in, uh, dire danger from their perspective of losing control of the House and the Senate. Uh, They uh, realize that you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which could drive a lot of um, Democratic and pro-choice voters to the polls, um, may be overshadowed by gas prices and inflation. And their initial posture of this is transitory, this isn't going to last, this is just because we're coming out of the pandemic and people want to spend money again, um, wasn't the whole story. And now they're really trying to show that they're on top of it before people start voting. Well, it stands out to me, Wendy, that you said that we're coming out of the pandemic because, Eva, that's that's not actually the case. We are still very much in a global pandemic right now. And we're feeling the effects of it, right? The the supply chain <laughs> crisis, these different issues didn't come out of nowhere. They are directly linked to this global pandemic. And I think that that is the uncomfortable reality in why there are limits to what President Biden can do, because we're still feeling the impact of this virus. Well, if you needed more reason to worry, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase predicted worse economic weather ahead. Right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. You know, everyone thinks the the Fed can handle this. That hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We just don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm Sandy or uh, yeah, Sandy or or uh, Andrew or something like that. And it's you, you better brace yourself. That was Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay, David, what what's all this weather uh, related economic news about? Uh, about a recession. Uh, depends on which forecast you read. It could be uh, leading economists will tell you it'll happen later this year, mid-2023. Unemployment's down this morning, or actually it's stable this morning, 3.6%, I believe. But the problem is, both for economists, the Fed, and politicians, is that people are not economists. They drive down the street and they see gasoline topping five, six dollars a gallon out west, there's nothing, there's very little they can do. I mean, ask Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, how that worked out, <laughs> trying to be empathetic. It didn't. Richard Nixon tried wage price controls. You're not going to see that again. So this is, there's almost a helpless feeling here. Well, then we should mention that the U.S. added 390,000 jobs in May, and President Biden is speaking about the high job growth right now. He's calling it, quote, the most robust recovery in modern history. Eva, what are you taking away from the Democratic strategy around messaging uh, heading into 
November and and trying to, as I said, tout President Biden's you know argument about job growth, but also the reality of what people are paying in the grocery store and at the gas pump. It certainly has shifted. We have seen a number of administration officials on television this week just trying to make this case. But it, it's it's a hard thing to do. You know, you cannot make an academic argument that essentially things are not that bad when people are seeing high high gas prices. That is something that is so visible, uh, right? And uh, but but they are certainly making making a conservative effort. I just don't know how much it's going to move the needle. Well, I want to turn to another story this week. Many offices are are figuring out what to do after going remote. CEO Elon Musk made his stance clear this week. He said Tesla employees must return to the office in person for at least 40 hours a week or they'll lose their jobs. David, this new policy was gathered from leaked internal emails, but how does it stack up to what other major companies are doing right now? Yeah, they're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, you save money, frankly, uh, not having a down, expensive downtown office or an expensive campus. On the other hand, you don't get that collegiality. You don't get the, uh, how can I put it, you don't get the group thought. Uh, look at newsrooms. I mean, we feed on each other very often, just as we're doing here on this show, mm-hmm. you know, trading ideas and so on and so forth. There's no black and white solution here, but, um, but one of the things that uh, – I think it was Musk quote I, who talked about um, he doesn't want any quote rem- remote pseudo offices. Uh, this idea that somehow people are at home just doing their laundry instead of working. So yeah, someone who who worked from home for about yeah, a year. Right. I I for one was happy to get back into the office. I'll just speak for myself, Eva. Yeah, sometimes you work more at home. Yeah, but but also I would say that these company many companies want to be competitive, and it's you know much more doable maybe for a, a single working mom or a single working dad, right, to be able to have that flexibility from working from home. So as these companies think about the post pandemic reality. You also want to be able to attract and retain workers. So that has to be part of the calculation as well. And I want to turn to a bit of other tech news before we wrap up. Facebook is facing a huge loss. This week, Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook's parent company, Meta, announced she's stepping down. Sandberg has been at the company for 14 years, helped grow Meta's revenue from $272 million in 2008 to nearly $118 billion billion in 2021. Wendy, what does this mean for the company? Well, I think it is a will be a huge culture shift for the company. She she set herself up not only as a leader of Facebook, who was um, intensely loyal to Facebook and and actually got herself in a little trouble over um, over their privacy policies and things like that. But she also became sort of a corporate feminist leader. I mean, she coined that phrase, lean in, where uh, she urged women to go to the meeting, don't be afraid to speak up, don't apologize. I mean, I think these are all things that Eva and I and you have probably thought about since she's been the COO of Facebook. Um, So when she leaves, that leaves, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has the main face of it. He is, he's not as universally popular (laughs) as she made herself during this time. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. We should say that Sandberg also backtracked on on some of those ideas after um, some major life changes herself and took a, a slightly different stance. We've got just about 30 seconds left here, but I'd love to hear what stories each of you are watching in the coming weeks. Eva, I'll come to you first. 
actually, I think that the the debate over gun control uh, or a gun regulation, I should say, <laughs> is more nuanced uh, than we think on the left, because I'm interested to see if some of these these laws come with enhanced criminal penalties. Isn't that in contrast with some of the calls that we've seen from progressives in terms of criminal justice reform? So I'm looking in that space. David, briefly. Guns. Uh, there are many layers of the story, political uh policy, et cetera, et cetera. That's the story for the next couple of days. Wendy, you get the last word here. I think it's the economy and prices. That's Wendy Benjaminson. She's the man- deputy managing ed- editor of Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Also with us today, David Lightman, the congressional correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers, and Eva McKend, a national politics reporter with CNN. Eva, David, Wendy, thanks so much. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Chris Castano is our digital editor. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Victory will be ours. That was the message posted earlier today by Ukraine's President Zelensky. He and his country are marking the 100th day since Russia's most recent invasion in February. The effects have reverberated around the world. Our other stories this week include a very different anniversary that's playing out as we speak in the UK, plus newfound freedoms for millions who've been locked down in China. And Canada moves ahead with gun reforms that have many here asking questions about why we can't do the same. Let's get to all of it with our panel. Our guests today are Robbie Grammer, diplomacy and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Robbie, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Also with us, Indira Lakshmanan, Senior Executive Editor for National Geographic. Indira, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always great to have you on. Hello. So let's start with some updates on the war in Ukraine. This escalation of a longstanding conflict with Russia is now in its fourth month. President Biden wrote an opinion piece for The New York Times this week, highlighting what the U.S. will and won't do to aid Ukraine. He writes, quote, we are not encouraging or enabling Ukraine to strike beyond its borders. We do not want the prolonged war just to inflict inflict pain on Russia, end quote. Now, Indira, Biden also announced that the U.S. will be sending various weapons, including more advanced rocket systems to Ukraine. How does that square with his assertion that the U.S. will not directly engage in the will not directly engage in the conflict? Well, the op-ed that he wrote for the New York Times, in which he announced that the U.S. would be sending this high-mobility artillery rocket system, HIMARS, um, was very carefully worded to say that the U.S. is going to stick with Ukraine all the way in terms of providing advanced weaponry and helping Ukraine to protect itself. His argument was that the United States has an interest in an independent and free Ukraine and not allowing Russia to break the world order by willy-nilly invading countries. He also welcomed that Finland and Sweden had um, submitted their own applications for NATO membership, which shows the ways in which Putin's actions are backfiring in terms of more countries wanting to join NATO. But he also said clearly that he's not looking for a war between NATO and Russia. Um, In the op-ed, he also gave a very strong warning, saying that Russia should not even consider using nuclear weapons 
um, although he deemed the likelihood of that to be unlikely, um, but said that even talking about it, even Russia discussing it, is a terrible thing. I think the, the, the main point here is that, as, he, as this is his words, Biden said, America's goal is straightforward. We want a democratic, independent, sovereign, and prosperous Ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression. I mean, what is striking about this is that U.S. is giving incredibly advanced military, um, you know, this rocket launcher that is way beyond anything that Russia has. And uh, and it is only owned by a few countries other than the United States. Only Jordan, UAE, Singapore and Romania currently have it. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke Wednesday about those weapons being sent to Ukraine. Specifically with regard to weapon systems being provided, the Ukrainians have given us assurances that uh, they will not use these systems against targets on Russian territory. Uh, there is a strong trust bond between Ukraine and the United States, as well as with uh, our allies and partners. I'd also uh, say that throughout this um, aggression, indeed even before, President Biden was very clear with President Putin about what the United States would do if Russia proceeded with its aggression. Now, Robbie Indira alluded to the sophistication of these weapons, these, these rocket systems the U.S. will be sending. But what more can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, the, these systems could um, potentially be a game changer on the battlefield. Um, Russia's obviously faced some pretty significant and embarrassing battlefield setbacks and failures on many fronts since launching this war in late February. Um, but where it's failing in a lot of areas, uh, one aspect where it's succeeding is its continued artillery strikes on Ukrainian targets. Um, and these these higher-end, longer-range artillery systems that the U.S., um, uh, Germany, and U.K. Are, are talking about sending to Ukraine could just could be just the counterpunch that the Ukrainians need to take out Russian artillery that's been battering their forces, uh, particularly across eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region for months. Now, we heard Secretary Blinken say there that Ukraine has made assurances that these missiles will only be used within the country's own borders. Robbie, how realistic is that? I mean, at, at this point, um, you know, Ukraine doesn't really have a choice but but to honor that agreement. I think it's it's clear from, from what Secretary Blinken said, from what Biden said, they're still very concerned that um, this conflict could... Um, in any way, even inadvertently, spill over into a broader NATO-Russia conflict, which neither side wants at this point. So, so they're taking pains to, you know, say while we completely back um, Ukraine, we're continuing to send weapons. We don't want this to be uh, in any way um, the start for any wider confrontation between the between the West and Russia. Now, David, Biden's $40 billion aid package to Ukraine received bipartisan support, but there were many critiques of the move as well, particularly from Republican lawmakers. What does this op-ed say about how far the U.S. is willing to go to support Ukraine? I thought it was interesting that even at this late stage, I mean, 100 days into this war, you saw the president laying out in the op-ed that America doesn't actually want to make this war drag on. He said, you know, we do not want to prolong the war just to inflict pain on Russia. And, you know, to defenders of the war, to supporters of the war, you wouldn't even need to make that argument. But Russia and some of its allies, China, where I am, they're absolutely 
accusing America not just of being to blame for this war by expanding NATO, which is uh, sort of nonsense given the arguments that Putin himself made for starting this war, but the idea is that America is dragging this war out as long as possible. It wants to fight to the last Ukrainian dead uh, because this is, you know, enriching defense contractors in America. It's inflicting pain on Russia, which is a kind of strategic goal of the Americans. And so I think it was striking that in this op-ed in an American paper, he had to address those who still wonder whether America is up to no good in Ukraine, as opposed to what the American government says it is, which is trying to make sure that crime does not pay and that this invasion will not be rewarded uh, with a win. He also said that the goal is to, to, to give the Ukrainians the strongest possible position at the negotiating table when this war ends with peace talks and negotiations. So I think he was setting out the kind of the moral case for this. And that is because uh, not only kind of uh, sort of pacifists on the left in America have always disliked this kind of war, you're seeing there's an isolationist streak. There is a, a very strong kind of Trumpian isolationist streak in the Republican Party. You saw uh, senators like Rand Paul, famously a very isolationist figure uh, from Kentucky, holding up this package for a very long time and then saying that he wanted to have anti-corruption investigations to make sure this this money didn't go to waste. And so it's, it's a striking sort of, uh, I think this op-ed is an extraordinarily striking sort of vision of a moment where The the president of America, the most powerful man in the world, has to make the case in his own domestic media that America is actually on the side of right and and is trying to uphold the the rules-based order as opposed to just taking advantage of this war. Here's a tweet we got from Ray who says, I don't mind assisting Ukraine, but where are the Europeans? After all, that war is on their turf. We are spending billions. Indira, what can you tell us about the support coming in from European nations? Well, the Europeans are um, separately doing plenty. Um, The German government has promised to send an air defense system, something called the IRIS-T, which is the most modern system that Germany um, possesses. Um, The other thing that the EU has done, of course, is, you know, the pledges of oil embargo, um, which for them is a huge um, self-sacrifice since Europe is so dependent on Russian gas. Um, But, you know, the way saying that we're going to undertake an embargo, not by Russian gas, with, you know, a very few exceptions, is certainly a way that, um, you know, Europe is trying to deprive Russia of the resources it needs to fight the war um, and biting the bullet on its own side. But, you know, I I do want to take stock of the fact that today is 100 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's as good a time as any to sort of take stock of where we are. This is a war that Putin thought would be over in a couple of days, uh, much in the way perhaps that the U.S. under Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, thought that the U.S. invasion in Iraq would be over in a few days with everyone throwing flowers. Well, it hasn't turned, it didn't turn out that way in Iraq, and it hasn't turned out that way in Ukraine either. And, you know, not only is it incredibly painful um, to see and hear the cost, which, you know, most upsettingly is um, what the Ukrainian president recently said was 200,000 Ukrainian children that he believes um, that the government has information have been abducted into onto Russian territory by Russian troops. But on top of that, this is Europe's worst armed conflict in decades, right, since Bosnia. Um, Moscow hasn't released a lot of information or updated information about its own casualties, but the Ukrainian side says that at least tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians have died so far. And and I, that, I, I, I want to bring Robbie in here, too, because, Robbie, how is Russia faring at this stage of the conflict? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, just like what Indira said, I mean, the, this this three-day war has just hit the 100-day war mark. So clearly it's not going well for, for Putin. Um, you know, his, his military on paper had all the advantages, theoretically should have been able to take Kyiv and, and topple the government in Ukraine in, in a matter of days. And yet the stiff Ukrainian resistance, the effective resistance combined with the, you know, fumbling, clumsy, uh, ill-prepared Russian military has, has turned this into a, into a drawn-out conflict um, that's reached the 100-day mark. Um, I think it's clear that, that Putin is facing a lot more setbacks, and, and even the, the, the modest military gains it's made in eastern Ukraine are a far cry from its initial military objectives of basically taking the entire country. Russian forces continue gaining ground and now occupy most of the city of Severodonetsk in eastern Ukraine. David, what more do we know about this battle? It's it's a very tough battle, and that's because uh, the, the Russian effort is now very much focused on this eastern part of Ukraine that touches the Russian border. Uh, there's a lot of Russian speakers in this area. And remember that since the, the, the last time that Russia invaded in 2014, you've had quite large areas of this eastern region. It's a kind of steel and coal rust belt area of Ukraine that have been under basically Russian control via some kind of puppet Russian-speaking separatist governments. And just before the invasion this February, uh, the Russian government announced that it recognized the independence of two little republics in this area. Now, the fight for Severodonetsk matters because this is one of the uh, Ukrainian-held towns that juts the deepest into Russian-held territory. And it's right on an important transport link, uh, rail and road. And the problem is that you have Ukrainian forces, uh, including a force of about 10,000 troops, right up near there, uh, who, if the Russians can take Severodonetsk, which they seem to be on the point of doing, if they can then cut the rail and road links, they can encircle this Ukrainian force. And these are some of the most uh, experienced troops who have been fighting the separatists uh, for eight years now. And so this is a warning that although it's kind of, uh, you know, we've had lots of headlines about how badly the Russians uh, fought around, you know, when they tried and failed to take this, the capital city, Kiev. This terrain in the east is very open country. Uh, it favors these long range artillery duels, which favors the way that the Russians have fought since the, the Second World War, which is these massive artillery barrages where they're not particularly scrupulous about what they hit in terms of civilians or military targets at the other end. And that is what they're doing here in Severodonetsk. And so the danger is that we get, I think, too carried away and say that, you know, because it's 100 days into this war and because the Russians have clearly had to change their mission from taking Kiev in a sort of lightning strike into this kind of slogging fight, that somehow this means the Russians are going to lose. I think it's quite clear that Vladimir Putin uh, thinks that he is more patient than the West, that he has more stomach for casualties than the, than the Western world does, and that we're going to lose interest. We're going to start fighting ourselves or worrying about how much this costs. And he is very, very happy to have a frozen conflict uh, where he just grabs a large chunk of terrain and keeps it just under kind of miserable semi-war conditions because that's what he's done around the corner for, from Severodonetsk uh, for the last eight years. So it's a really grim situation. I think a reminder not to get too carried away by the idea that Russia is losing this war for sure. This could carry on a very long time and could be extremely grim. Well, Indira, David brings up a, a good point. Uh, there's a reported 100 Ukrainian soldiers dying each day in East Ukraine. Uh, to what extent is this fight much like the fighting we've seen in this region since 2014? 
Well, I I have to echo what David said about how, you know, it's also a question of what are Putin's goals. And Putin might have said at the beginning that he thought that it was going to be a walkover to just go into Kiev. That didn't happen. Moscow could at some point capture Severodonetsk, take control. Right now, they control 80% of the city, according to local Ukrainian officials. Um, They could sort of definitively take over um, the whole Donbass region, which includes Luhansk and neighboring Donetsk and sort of declare a symbolic territorial victory. That would be sort of the nearest term end, I could imagine, that they could march out and say, okay, well, we have annexed the entire Donbass, which would not be good for Ukraine or for the world order. Um, You know, that's the sort of easiest way it could end. But David's also right that this could turn into one of the long frozen conflicts that Russia is very familiar with and doesn't seem to have a problem maintaining. Think about the long frozen conflicts conflict for years in Chechnya or in Georgia, um, you know, all sorts of parts of Russia where they've had separatist action. They have had long frozen conflicts. And let's face it, this war in Ukraine has really been going on since 2014 with Russia annexing Crimea and getting away with it and installing these Russian-backed separatist puppet governments in the eastern part of Ukraine. I mean, I just want to say that to the question of how much is this going to cost and whether we could devolve into fighting among ourselves in the West, don't forget that the cost of this war is seen every day in people's pocketbooks here. It's driving up the cost for basic goods. Um, Crude oil prices in the US and the UK have risen 20 to 25%. And as far away as Africa, wheat supplies have been disrupted because remember, Ukraine is a breadbasket to the world. And 1.4 billion people worldwide are being affected by shortages of grain and fertilizer. Um, so, you know, there there are really big ripple effects from this that can't be discounted. Um, and I could see this going on for a long time. Yeah. Robbie, what updates can you give us on how Russia is dealing with the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and allies at the start of this war? Well, at, at this point, it's, it's, it's relaunched a, a propaganda campaign to try to point to all of these ripple effects that Indira just talked about, you know, the, the, the sharp rise in, in energy prices, in wheat prices and other food staples, um, pinning the blame on the United States um, and its allies um, for causing all of this, saying, well, if, you know, if it wasn't for these crippling sanctions, you know, maybe we wouldn't have these, uh, these economic ripple effects. Of course, conveniently ignoring the fact that it was Russia who who provoked and started this conflict um, from the outset. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think what you're seeing is um, even beyond the United States, other countries around the world, um, African countries, some in the Middle East, um, are starting to to wane a bit on on broad international support for Ukraine. Um, in fact, the the leader of the African Union is is set to to meet and speak with with Vladimir Putin this week today. I, I think. Um, and there are a lot of countries, as Indira said, who who are just heavily reliant on both Russian and Ukrainian exports right now that are, um, you know, developing countries um, uh, not doing well economically to begin with. And, and all of these pressures, knock-on effects from the conflict on the commodities market, on, on food staples, on on energy prices are, are really starting to, to batter their economy. And they're just trying to find a way to... Um, to help their own countries right now, even if that means, uh, uh, you know, reaching out to Russia and, and starting to engage with them again. 
Well, President Zelensky accused Russia of deporting more than 200,000 children during this war. Indira, this is something you alluded to earlier. Zelensky said, and this is from a translated post on a Ukrainian government website, quote, these are orphans from orphanages, children with parents, children separated from their families. What more do we know about these deportations and what's happening with these children? Well, first of all, I, I'd like to say that I don't think we should be using the word deportation um, because this is abduction. If children are being taken from one country illegally across the border into another country, that is really kidnapping. And deportation makes it sound like some kind of official thing um, when, you know, done by a government against somebody who did something wrong. But stealing someone from one nation and taking them across is beyond that. It's kidnapping. Um, you know, this is information that the Ukraine Ukrainian government has gathered. I, you know, I don't know whether U.S. or European intelligence sources have verified it, but it's part of the much larger issue that has been verified by the U.N. Refugee Agency that estimates that almost 7 million Ukrainians have been driven out of the country at some point during the conflict, even though a little over 2 million have returned back to the country. Um, that's still a significant number. And over 7 million people are internally displaced. So this has had a huge and terrible humanitarian impact. And the stealing of children across the border would be just one of alleged horrible atrocities and war crimes committed by the Russians um, that, again, you know, would take international authorities to verify, um, but that early reports are suggesting have happened, including using rape as a war crime um, and, and other war crimes. So 100 days into this latest invasion of Ukraine, David, what comes next? Well, there's clearly the campaign on the ground and these new weapons that the Americans are offering, among others. Uh, you know, it's going to take several weeks for the for the troops to, to be trained to use them. The idea of these more sort of long range weapons is to try and let them stand further away in, a, in an artillery duel. The further you are away, if you have the longer range weapon, you should be a bit safer uh, because the Ukrainians have the smaller army. The Russians have many more men. Yes, they've had a bad fight. They've been losing people at, at a, a terrifying rate, but they do fundamentally have the bigger, stronger army. And they could try and keep dragging this out militarily for a long time. There's also a political and diplomatic piece. So the listener who made the point about, you know, are the Americans the only people paying uh, for weapons? What about the Europeans? There's another part of Europe that we need to think about in terms of the politics, which is there are now millions of refugees in Europe. That's not true in America. Uh, it's Europeans in many places in Central Europe, in Germany, uh, whose who's gas in the winter to keep their homes warm, uh, to power their factories, comes from Russia. That's that's a major risk that the American public doesn't face. So yes, America is being generous with all of these uh, billions of dollars of weapons, but there is a European political risk here for European governments who to date have been remarkably united uh, in standing up to Vladimir Putin. We've seen, you know, traditionally rather kind of soft uh, governments on Russia, like the German government in particular, are becoming much more hawkish, increasing defense spending, really, you know, changing their, the way that they get gas from Russia over the medium term. But the costs are very high. And if there's a massive energy crisis next winter, if it becomes too expensive to heat your home in Europe, if there are refugees in the streets of European cities, that is going to be a massive political headache for elected governments in Europe. And that's what Vladimir Putin is betting on. He is already seeing some opposition parties, pro-Russian opposition parties on the far left, far right, in places like Italy, in places like France, in places like Germany, saying, we should have peace now. It's time to stop this awful war. Let's have peace. And their price for peace 
is to hand over chunks of Ukrainian territory to Vladimir Putin to buy him off. You then have on the other side, the US, the UK, former communist bloc countries saying, if you reward Vladimir Putin for this uh, criminal invasion, you are going to be making him think that crime pays and you will have to worry about him doing it again somewhere else. And so there is a real test coming up, not just a military test uh, in Ukraine, but a massive political and diplomatic test of whether the West can stay united if this is no longer 100 days, but a year or two years or three years. And Vladimir Putin is betting that we will not stay united. While lawmakers here debate new legislation restricting access to firearms, our northern neighbor is moving ahead with its own plan. On Monday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a plan to limit access to handguns across the country. Other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Prime Minister Trudeau alluded to the shootings in Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo, New York in his speech. He said, quote, we need only look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse and more difficult to counter, end quote. Robbie, what are the details of this new proposal, which go beyond just limiting access to handguns? Yeah, so so um, Trudeau is is looking to limit access to handguns, um, and already is is outlining plans to ban um, over fifteen hundred types of military style firearms, offer a mandatory buyback program um, from from the government to buy some of these guns back from people, um, and if people do want to keep their assault weapons in in Canada, um, they'll have to be made completely inoperable, um, and this of course is. Is, is a direct uh, a result of, of, like what he said, is going on south of the border. Um, and it's just another sign of how this constant cycle of horrific mass shootings in the United States is, is causing ripple effects in foreign countries. Um, you know, foreign countries are reacting to how the, how the United States is, is not reacting to any of this, where, where there's just a, a, a cycle of, of talking about it and, and no major reforms on, on, uh, on gun control or, or gun restrictions in the United States that just leads to more and more shootings. Well, the premier of Saskatchewan called the proposal, quote unquote, virtual virtue signaling by the federal government. And in an interview Tuesday, Scott Moe said, quote, it's extremely problematic because it absolutely appears to be going after those that own firearms, but do so legally, end quote. Indira, how effective have restrictions on handguns and buyback programs been in reducing gun violence for other countries? Yeah, first I want to fact check what that Saskatchewan um, politician said, because that's not actually true. It's a freeze, it's not a ban. So it means that people who currently own um, these firearms would still be allowed to own them, um, but they wouldn't be allowed to transfer them um, to businesses or other individuals. So, you know, there, there would be rules about that, but it isn't a complete ban. Um, the question about this buyback um, that, you know, they're thinking that details will be um, meted out later um, this, this summer, um, 
is really an interesting question because other countries have tried buybacks. And I think the best example to look at is Australia. Um, listeners may remember that in 1996, uh, a young man with a troubled past um, opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle and killed 35 people in Australia on the island of Tasmania and wounded another 28. And after that, very quickly, in less than one year, Australia responded um, to this problem with a really straightforward and strict response, which is it collected 650,000 privately held guns. That was one of the largest mandatory gun buyback programs in recent history. And the analysis of it has basically shown that murders and suicides plummeted after this um, gun buyback. And particularly, this was true um, for mass shootings and um, for female homicide victimization. That that was th those plus firearm suicides were the strongest effects that were seen. Um, so, you know, this has worked elsewhere. And um, it seems, you know, Australia feels that it's saved lives. I think it's interesting that you know, Canada is pointing to us and saying, we don't want to turn into the U.S. And, you know, the writer Charlie Pierce wrote somewhat comically in, uh, in Esquire that Canada is now talking about us like we're the meth lab downstairs, mm. you know, saying that we only need to look south of the border to see that if we don't take action, it gets worse and worse. Um, so it's a very important point that they're looking to us and taking action themselves. Shanghai mostly burst back to life Wednesday as the government lifted its citywide two-month COVID lockdown. China's most populous and wealthiest city saw traffic back on the streets and its skyscrapers back in business. But by Thursday, people in several neighborhoods were confined again. David, we've talked about China's zero COVID policy on previous programs. How well did it work in Shanghai? Well, once again, China has done something that no other country could pull off, but there's another part to that sentence, which is no other country would probably want to pull it off. China has, you know, sacrificed extraordinary amounts. Uh, individual Chinese in Shanghai, as you say, a city of 25 million people, many of them have spent two months basically indoors coming out, uh, you know, sometimes spending weeks and weeks without leaving their apartments, but all coming out just to get a COVID test and going straight back indoors again, at times without enough food, uh, without fresh fruit and vegetables to eat. I and mean, it has been absolutely miserable. So we saw these really cheering scenes of people having picnics on the riverbank, uh, at the Huangpu, uh, going to the, sort of the main shopping districts, just kind of out with their families, enjoying. It's actually a public holiday here today for Dragon Boat Festival. So people enjoying the kind of the, the summer sunshine and just the chance to get out and see the sky. But the problem is that this extraordinary kind of toolkit that the Chinese government has built uh, involving mass testing, people as soon as they're tested as even a close contact with someone who might have COVID, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people taken away to these massive quarantine sites for weeks on end to keep the sort of to crush each outbreak. They have built an extraordinary machine for crushing outbreaks. And it worked even in a city as large as Shanghai, although it took two months. But the problem is that the machine that they have built has nothing in that toolkit to stop it happening all over again. And you're quite right that we saw today, uh, you know, because the rules stay as strict as ever, individual streets and little mini neighborhoods in Shanghai going back down under lockdown. I'm sitting in Beijing here, it's late at night here, but you know, we're in a sort of weird semi-lockdown, you know, restaurants aren't open, a lot of shops only opened yesterday, we have to get tested every other day, uh, you can't leave Beijing at all easily without, you know, the risk of being quarantined when you get out somewhere else. So 
it's it's an extraordinary price that they are paying. And why are they paying it? It's because they know that they have not vaccinated their old people well enough. Their hospital system is weak and they don't have great vaccines. They only have old fashioned vaccines. And so if they let it rip as America has or as Europe has, they would have millions of deaths on their hands. And so that is a reason why they're doing this lockdown. But the problem is that this technique they're using, which is so costly economically and socially, it doesn't actually get them an exit. They have no way out of this, just lockdown and lockdown and lockdown. So celebrate the incredible achievement. Cheer for the poor Shanghais who have spent uh, two months locked indoors who are now out seeing the sun. But it could happen all over again. Well, let's hear from one resident in Shanghai. He calls himself Elvis, and he spoke to the YouTube channel Memos to the Future. A lot of friends I made during the COVID lockdown, most of them are thinking about leaving Shanghai because they cannot put up with such a sense of uncertainty. That's why I said it's very important for the government to carry out some real things to make them feel that life will go back to the norm. Again, that's Elvis in Shanghai. Also a week ago, China's cabinet held an emergency meeting to discuss the country's slowed economy. The Chinese government says more than 100,000 people took part in the conference. Indira, what impact have these severe lockdowns had on the Chinese economy and and how much is that affecting the global economy? Yeah, it's been a a huge impact on both. Um, And as David said, this zero COVID policy has certainly saved a lot of lives, no question about it. I think it's partly also a national pride thing that China, which is blamed for, you know, having COVID having started in China in the city of Wuhan, um, doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want the shame um, and doesn't want, you know, millions of its citizens to die the way that more than a million Americans have died. It doesn't want to take the blame for that either. But the, the call you're talking about that happened last week was Chinese officials led by the Premier Li Keqiang, whose job it is to basically oversee the economy. Um, his cabinet held this incredible emergency meeting with more than 100,000 participants from local and provincial and city council levels. Um, this video teleconference, which to me <laughs> just makes me think of how many thousands of pages of Zoom um, Hollywood squares must there have been on this on this video conference. The topic was serious to talk about the economic impact this March and April with Omicron, um, which supposedly has surpassed even the impact in the economy in 2020 during the initial outbreak. Um, Li Keqiang unveiled 33 new economic measures, including increasing tax refunds, extending loans to small businesses, providing emergency loans to the aviation industry and other things. Um, But the fact is that with more than 30 cities under full or partial lockdown, which you know, impacts more than 200 million people nationwide. Many companies have been forced to suspend operations, international and Chinese companies. And uh, this is affecting the supply chain all the way to the United States and other places that depend on Chinese exports. And don't forget that, um, you know, UBS, um, the Swiss bank, has dropped its forecast for Chinese growth to just 3% this year. And the economy had not slowed that much since 1990 in the past 40 years. So this would be a major hit on the Chinese economy. David, how are Chinese officials talking about the economy within the country? 
It's really interesting. Their priority is still this very much top-down sort of infrastructure spending. So we're going to see more motorways, uh, more water treatment projects, more kind of uh, high-tension power lines to kind of modernize the country. Now, those aren't dumb things to do. You know, China still needs more railways and motorways and high-powered electricity lines. But I think what's really interesting is that they will not do what you've seen President Biden and other Western leaders do, which is just hand out stimulus money to regular folks, you know, stimulus checks. You saw this with the Trump administration, with the Biden administration. That idea of kind of maybe we just need to give like a a bit of money to each family so they can go and buy what they choose. In China, this supposedly communist country, and in many ways it is a communist country, they talk about, no, 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 that would make people lazy because if we give them money without them having to work for it, that will make them addicted to welfare. And so the supreme leader here, Xi Jinping, actually gave a speech the other day in which he used this phrase he's used before about, we have no interest in introducing welfareism. And so it's this odd situation that for a communist country that in many ways is very suspicious of private business, very suspicious of kind of billionaires getting too powerful, They also don't like welfare. They don't like people being lazy. They like people to be kind of marching around and going to work. And so it's a very conservative with a small C country as well. And so it's going to be more concrete poured, uh, but not the kind of local stimulus, the kind of household stimulus that you see in places like America. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, was in China earlier this week, and it's the first time a UN Human Rights Commissioner has visited the country in 17 years. But her trip did not go down well outside China. And Dara, just briefly, who are we talking about and what happened? Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought this up because Michelle Bachelet, who is the top UN um, human rights um, official, is also the former president of Chile. And um, I lived in Chile during the transition from Pinochet to democracy, from military rule to democracy, working for NPR, in fact, and others. And it's stunning to me to see Michelle Bachelet take this trip. She herself was the daughter of someone who was, um, you know, basically um, tortured and taken out by the Pinochet regime. And she was seen as a great democratic leader in the in the period that followed military rule rule. Here she is going into China, um, visiting Xinjiang, which is this western Turkic um, part of China, um, where a 2019 UN assessment found that one million mostly Muslim Uyghur citizens of China had been held in detention camps. Um, And, you know, a lot of critics have said she's essentially whitewashing China's actions by adopting Beijing's language. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's come off extremely badly. And during her trip, all these hacked files were released in emails that showed all sorts of further evidence of um, crackdown, repression, um, including a shoot-to-kill policy for escapees from these concentration camps and evidence of people detained for decades for things as simple as using their cell phones less, which is seen as a way of trying to avoid state surveillance. So it certainly did not go down well, and it's puzzling um, that, you know, the head UN official for human rights would go to China and not take a stand against what's happening in Xinjiang. Well, let's move on now to Cuba. It's now easier for Americans to travel to the island. The Biden administration lifted flight restrictions that were established under former President Donald Trump. Secretary of State Antony Blinken sent a letter to the Transportation Department on Tuesday asking it to revoke that order, and the agency followed through Wednesday. Robbie, how could lifting of flight restrictions to cities other than Havana impact Cuba's tourist-dependent economy? 
Well, it, it's it's obviously a win for for Cuba's uh, tourism economy since since Trump restricted and then effectively halted all flights to Cuba back back in 2020. Uh, uh, the Cuban economy, I mean, has well, Cuba has been under U.S. embargo for for about 60 years here, um, and the, the pendulum, for, you know, the pattern is the pendulum swings between Democratic and Republican administrations, where Democratic administrations, particularly starting under Obama, tried to reopen some diplomatic ties with Cuba to try to restart talks, um, and in Republican administrations, um, particularly Trump, have have clawed all of that back. Um, I mean, I, I think it underscores how, how Biden is, is trying to rethink U.S.-Cuba policies after after this uh, sort of stasis of, of the embargo. But but he's he's going to get hammered by the Republicans, and particularly in the key swing state of Florida, where where a majority of Cuban-American uh, diaspora lives um, for for basically helping enrich the, the Cuban uh, government because the government um, relies on the tourism industry on remittances um, for families there to, uh, uh, you know, to prop up its government, um, um, uh, suppress its people, um, and also support the embattled uh, government in Venezuela right now. Robbie, briefly, what appears to be the Biden administration's long-term plan with Cuba? Secretary Blinken said the opening of flights was, quote, in support of the Cuban people and in the foreign policy interests of the United States. I mean, it, it seems like the, the Biden administration is not at this point trying some uh, dramatic uh, re- reappraisal of, of U.S.-Cuba relations to completely open um, open diplomatic ties with, with Cuba again. Um, but what they are doing is incrementally trying to pull back some of the um, hardline Trump administration policies, um, you know, ending this prohibition on airlines. Um, um, there's also a, a push to, to lift restrictions on on money that immigrants can send his family um, and reinstate this this program where um, uh, families in the U.S. can apply for um, their families in Cuba um, to go on parole and allow them to come back to the U.S. Um, it, it appears that the administration is, is trying to start um, some of these soft power diplomatic linkages with uh, with the Cuban people um, in a way to, to start a conversation with the Cuban government. But um, like I said, you know, if, if there's a, a, a if the Republicans gain a lot of ground in, in the midterms or in 2024, if they take the White House again, I, I think you'll see a lot of this uh, be reversed again, the reversal of the Trump reversals, so to speak, and, and we'll be back to square one here. Well, let's wrap things up today with a party. Celebrations are underway throughout the UK as the country raises a glass to their longest-serving monarch. In London, Trooping the Color kicked off Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. Thousands cheered as the Queen appeared twice for the first time in years on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. She was dressed in a pale blue coat dress and hat, holding a cane and wearing shaded glasses. And among this crowd, a healthy number of supporters from this side of the pond. I'm from New York, but I've lived here 28 years. We love the royal family, and we're here to celebrate. I'm from Texas. It's really amazing to be able to be here and to know that like every year like, on this anniversary, we're going to be able to look back and say that we were here. We came from Orlando, Florida. Just for the Jubilee? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Seeing the, the entire like community come together behind her is real cool. Whether you're a monarchist or not, Queen Elizabeth's public service for these past 70 years is is remarkable. Indira, do you think she'll be a tough act to follow? 
Uh, well, I, I want to sort of bracket what you said, because there's no question that she's done public service and she was an incredible icon for the British people, especially during World War II with her own, um, you know, jumping in and self-sacrifice and all her service during World War II and the symbol that she set. But I also want to say that the sun long ago set on the British Empire, which used to control one quarter of the earth. And in the seven decades that she's been in power, she hasn't shown a lot of awareness of um, you know, the misdeeds of the empire. And there hasn't been sort of apology or admittance for oppression um, and dispossession that's happened in many places, including um, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, um, the Caribbean, and many places. So I think, you know, we, we also have to, those of us who aren't monarchists, um, need to also think about this in, in those terms, that, um, you know, there, there is a question of taking stock of what your country has done under your rule and and how do you see it. And um, David's own magazine, The Economist, referred to all the parties that are happening and saying that much of what's unfolding is objectively ludicrous well, David, in terms I wanna, of the over-the-top celebrations. We've so got, I'd love to hear from him. Yeah, we've got just a few seconds here, David. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear from you on this. Look, I think that Britain is a very divided country at the moment. We saw the Prime Minister booed as he went into the main service in St. Paul's Cathedral. That's a sign of just how sort of grumpy people are. So, you know, sitting here in Beijing, it all seems quite strange. It's true from a very long way away. But I will take a bit of unity and a bit of sort of public happiness uh, in a country that has been pretty divided and uh, has had some bad sort of knocks uh, with COVID and Brexit and stuff. So I'm not sort of scowling. I'm not actually uh, waving a Union Jack because I'd probably be arrested by the Chinese police if I did. But... Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cheering them on from a long way away. That's David Rennie. He's Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Also with us, Robbie Grammer. He covers diplomacy and national security at Foreign Policy. And Indira Lakshmanan, Senior Executive Editor for National Geographic. Thanks, everybody. Huane's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.